to be with you guys. Dan and I, we've known each other for a long time. We went to seminary together, uh, served at the same church in Colorado together. He was the youth guy. I led a lot of the young adult ministries at the time. And uh, we just hung out, became fast friends, had lots of mutual interests, and uh, just got to know him. And you guys have one of the most amazing pastors I've ever met. Uh, genuinely loves people, loves the Bible, and cares deeply even about this church and community. Uh, over the last couple of years as I've served down in Seattle, and he's been up here probably every couple of months, we'll kind of meet in between in Everett and eat burritos, probably more burritos than we should, but we'll meet up in Everett and have some burritos, and he'll just tell me all about what's been going on here. And it's been amazing just to hear the stories and the journey that the Lord has had you guys on and where he has you now, even as you are looking into the next phase of how you're going to reach your community in this area. So it's a, it's a great privilege just for me to be up here and ro roam around a little bit even before church and talk to folks and uh, just get to meet some, uh, some new faces. So um, I guess you guys are in the middle of a series on Psalms. I, at least I hope so, because that's what I'm preaching on today. So you guys are in Psalms, and here's the awesome thing about Psalms. Here's the incredible thing about Psalms, is sometimes people get a little twisted and think that the Bible's all about head knowledge, that you get filled up on facts and information, you just have the right data, and then obviously you're going to do the right things. But then you go, and you're into Monday, Monday through Friday, where life is heavy, where there's a bunch of Cheerios on the floor, and there's diapers that need to be changed, and there's a long commute on the way to work, and all sorts of other bills, and stresses, and pressures, and fractured relationships, and feelings that you live with on a constant basis. And the beautiful thing about Psalms is Psalms acknowledges that those feelings are real, that that's a very big part of our lives, that the emotional part of our existence, of our lives, is real, and it's true, and it's where you and I exist. That we have moments of anger, that we have moments of doubt, we have deep moments of fear, we have moments where we're filled with joy and excitement and passion, and then other moments where we feel as if the world is coming to an end. Have you been there? Maybe you've been there this week. And the beautiful thing about Psalms is it's the, it's the biggest book in all of the Bible. And I think that's telling to us because it tells us a couple of important things, that the emotional life, that where we meet God, that where we intersect with God in our, our emotional life, in our hearts, in our desires, in our appetites, and in our affections is deeply attuned to what God knows about us and also what he says it means to be a human. There's song after song after song talking about the emotional life of the believer in some ways, I like to think of it as almost a, the soundtrack of life. That in those moments of great joy and prosperity and excitement, there's songs of praise, there's songs of worship, and there's songs of adoration. And those other moments of sickness and loss and sorrow, there's psalms that reflect that as well. It's this soundtrack of life. And we have the privilege of looking at one of my favorite psalms. Dan was kind enough to let me choose, so I did choose one of my favorites. We're going to be at Psalm 27 today. So if you want, you can open up your Bible. We'll also have it right behind here on the screen. And we're going to look at Psalm 27 today. And before we do, let me pray one more time because we need the Lord's help and we need his guidance as we dive into his word. God, you have been exceptionally gracious with every single one of us this morning. You allowed us to live and occupy space in your world You've allowed us to come in here and to seek your face, to sing songs of glory and adoration to who you are and to know you. And you've extended grace upon grace upon grace. And so God, uh, no matter where we find ourselves this morning, may the, 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 our ears and our, our hearts be soft and open to your word. And may the, the meditations of, of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be exceptionally pleasing to you. In your name, 
Amen. So when I lived in Colorado, um, I would routinely, not, not, I wouldn't do this well, but routinely I would try and go hiking. And they had all these things called 14ers. There were 50 mountains that were over 14,000 feet in Denver. And so you try and go hiking them. And I wasn't very great at hiking. I was usually the guy that was wheezing along and I didn't like it when people tried to talk. the vast distances out in front of you. And I remember one time I got to the top of a mountain and there was an older guy standing nearby and we began to strike up a conversation. I believed and I just asked him in return and he said to me something I'll never forget. He said, this here is my church. This is where I come to behold. This is where I come to observe beauty. And every single one of us, every single one of us has places and spaces where we go to consume what is beautiful. There's people that will spend $80,000 this year and give up four months of their life so that they can hike Mount Everest. You ever thought about that? Doesn't that seem weird? I mean, four months, you have to go over there, you have to go through all these journeys, all these acclimation period, you have to hike all this gear, put yourself through dangerous peril, and guess how long they get to stay at the summit? 15 minutes. Why would you spend $80,000, four months of your life, for 15 minutes of beauty? It's because the human soul is made for it. It's because what we behold, what we look at, what our heart is in love with transforms us more than anything else. Not the information just inside your head, not just the things that you think you know the most about, but the things that you behold, the things that you find most lovely, the things that are beautiful to you have captured your heart. And every single one of us walks in here this being shaped and transformed by the things that we find most beautiful. That's what it means when we sing songs, even as we just sang a couple minutes, to, to behold. It means to look upon, to look deeply in, and not just look in a way of like, wow, that's really interesting, like look at that guy on a unicycle, but to deeply gaze and be transformed. And this is where David finds himself in Psalm 27. So let's look at it, starting in verse 1. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. See, David finds himself in one of those pit moments where life has completely gone sideways. Things have fallen apart. David is about as low as you can possibly get. Here's David's predicament. David has made a mess of things. He's on the run, and most likely it's his son who has a murderous army chasing after him. Can you imagine what a mess your life has to be when your son is sending an army after you to kill you? And that's where David finds himself. David finds himself in a situation where there's people out, literally an army, wanting to destroy him. He's crying out. And he stands confident. What a weird thing to say in verse 3. He stands confident. 
in spite of an army being after him. I don't know about you guys, but if there was an army that was on their way to my house this morning, I would have been curled up in the fetal position somewhere. I would have been like, you know, I would have been crying. I wouldn't be like, man, I stand confident. But David stands confident, and he stands amazed. He stands amazed and confident. Why? What makes David so confident? And what about you? I mean, you may not have an army after you, but you have something in your life that's seeking to destroy you. Do you know 50% of us in this room at some point in our lives will sit in a doctor's office and we'll hear the word cancer? Destroy. Many of you have walked in here this morning and you've had relationships that have fallen apart. Many of you have an enemy who's bounded you in addiction and you're being destroyed by it. And all of us have an enemy who's trying to destroy us. Satan who comes to steal and to kill and destroy And so we have a real enemy, an enemy that is in some ways much greater than an army, but an enemy that seeks to destroy our souls. And the weird thing about it is we live in a world and we live in a time where crazy nonsensical ideas such as when you face complete depression, when you face complete sorrow, just kind of wish it away, pretend it doesn't exist, think happy thoughts. Maybe think about a new house you'd want or a new boat or maybe a houseboat. Or, you know, your email inbox being cleared out. Uh, You know, whatever it might be, but something that would save you from what you feel is trying to destroy you. What you're afraid of. Every single one of us walks in this morning, whether it's a high-grade or low-grade level of fear, battling some type of angst, anxiety, pressure, loneliness. Here's what fear is. Fear is just you thinking something that you need is being withheld or something you love about to be taken away something you believe you need being withheld or something you love you're afraid is going to be taken away. And so what do we do when we come to those moments? What is David going to do now that he has a murderous army standing outside the gate? I mean, his words here all together are completely a paradox because David tells us although he has something legitimately to be afraid of, he doesn't have to be afraid Look once again at verse 1. What does David say? He says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? What David does is David takes the fears of his life, an army in his case, the fears of his life, and he puts it in perspective of a big, holy God. He says, if I can look at God, if I can look at the one who makes the stars, if I can look at the one who created the sun, if I can look at the one who holds all molecules and time and space and matter together, if I can look at him and know that he's my salvation, that he wants good for me, that he's on my side, then what could this world possibly bring against me? It's perspective. It's an understanding. It's theology coming to life because here's David's emotional world and he's having to bring his theology into it. And too often our theology stays over here and our emotional life happens over here and we separate those two things out. And there's got to be an integration I mean, you won't make it far in life without some moment coming where your theology will be tested, whether you'll find out whether you honestly believe what you say you believe. Because notice, notice what the text says. The text says, it it doesn't say, mind you, it doesn't say that just because, just because David fears the Lord and David trusts the Lord that all his problems are going to go away, does it? It doesn't. And some of us, maybe that's our introduction or what we've heard about following Jesus. Oh, follow Jesus and things will get better and your problems will magically begin to dissipate and you'll get a, a, a new car and a, you know, a, a better attitude. None of that's true. In fact, it, it, it kind of just gets worse for David. It continues to get worse. 
What I want us to see today, let's look at verse 5, and then we're going to come back to verse 4. Here's what David says. He says, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. David finds himself in a deep day of trouble. He's most likely in a cave of some kind, and he says, the Lord will hide me. Notice he doesn't say the Lord will rapture me. He doesn't say the Lord will transport me. He doesn't say the Lord will take me out of. He says the Lord will hide me in the day of trouble. So the day of trouble remains. It doesn't go away. It's not just wiped off. As John Piper says, when the darkness will not lift, when the darkness does not go away, but God remains as well. And so much of my life, so much of your life, and so much of the good stuff where your transformation happens and where my transformation happens is when we're willing to stay in the darkness and realize that God is just as much there with us. And the beautiful thing is, is that God is not so much always interested in changing your circumstances, but using your circumstances to change you. And if we, be, we fall in love and we begin to worship, with God please change my circumstances, then we've turned him into a butler rather than the king of the universe. So God's always using your circumstances to transform you, to change you, to meet you where you're at. That's what Paul means when he says in Romans 8 that all of your life is, is an experience in which you're becoming more conformed into the image of Jesus. So when you get up, when you have an argument, when you have a d difficult day with your boss, when you eat a ham sandwich, whatever it is, all of it's done to the glory of God because it's part of your confirmation process in which you're being conformed more into the image of Jesus. Verse 6, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. So the enemies are still there. Imagine that. David probably steps out of this, this, this cave and all around him he's just surveying the landscape and he just sees his enemies closing in. Verse 10 gives us even more insight into David's actual situation. And just, you guys got to feel, you got to feel what David's going through right now. Verse 10 tells us that even his mom and dad have written him off. Imagine that. Verse 10 says, even his mom and dad have said, like, David, you're on your own. God's not getting rid of his problems, but rather he's meeting him in his problems. Jonathan Edwards, um, one of the greatest theologians and academic minds in United States history, uh, he was part of the great revival that took place in the United States back in the 18th century. He was also the president of Yale, and many consider him to be one of the, 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 the foremost theologians who have ever lived. And Jonathan Edwards was, was around during a time in which revival broke out and people everywhere were meeting Jesus. People were coming to Jesus, churches were being planted, disciples were being made, people were being baptized, and you could almost feel the emotional zeal in the air, and people were on fire for the Lord. And as Jonathan Edwards would survey this and try to understand and comprehend what of this is legitimate and genuine and true and which of this is just kind of emotional hype of some people getting swept up into what is going on. And Jonathan Edwards gave us these, this, these two great categories that I think Psalm 27 also depicts for us. He said there's, there's two types of people, two types of people that you'll often find claiming to be followers of Jesus. He would say there were the, the professors and the beholders. The professors and the beholders. So professors are those who would profess Jesus. Profess Jesus. And, and they would often do the exact same things that the beholders would do. So the professors, they would also read their Bible and they would also go to community group and they'd also serve and they would tithe and they would do all the same activities. They would even sing songs and maybe even lead worship, possibly even preach sermons. They would profess and then you had the beholders. 
those who would want nothing more than to gaze upon Jesus, not for his usefulness, but because of his beauty, because of his majesty, because of who he is. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, the professor finds God useful, the beholder finds God beautiful. The professor finds God to be a means to an end, the beholder finds God as an end. So what about you? When you think of God, when you think about why you got up this morning, you decided to spend your Sunday coming to church, being here, that we could be God's people together and sing songs of adoration and, a, um, and acclamation to him. Is it because you want more of God? It's because you find him beautiful. It's because you find him loving. Because you can't wait for the day in which you get to see him face to face and gaze upon him. Or do you find him useful? God, I think she's going to be great with spreadsheets. You know, I, I bet her diaper changing skills are awesome. Like this is, I mean, just doing this calculation. No, he's going, oh my gosh, she's going to marry me? Like such a deal. This is the best thing in the world. And in that moment, there's transformation that takes place. Transformation of her beauty and the fact that he gets to be united with her that altogether rises up and changes him. Man, I, I want to love her. I want to give my life away for her. My affections have changed because of her. Or what about when you held your child for the first time? Did you think, oh man, like I better get a book and now do these 28 things because that seems like the right thing to do? Or you just held your kid and you're just like, man, I'll, I'll jump in front of a bus now for this child. I know when I held my little girl for the first time, I mean, it was a transformative emotional moment. You could have told me all the theological things beforehand that would have happened, but in the moment is where the transformation You and I are the same. It happens every day in our lives, and that's the invitation that God brings to us. So why? Why does David, why? This is, this is where we have to see this, and verse 4 just totally nails this for us. What made it possible for David to stay confident in light of being told your problems and your circumstances probably aren't going to change? What made David stay so confident? I mean, just think about this. I mean, you guys are really nice people. I can tell super kind, awesome, hospitable. But if, if I was up here and I knew you guys were a murderous army and I knew you were coming after me, I, I would be legitimately afraid. David has people that, as, as verse 2 told us, they, they want to eat him. I mean, that's a pretty severe threat. I don't know about you guys, but I love staying alive. It's one of my like, top three favorite things. I want to remain alive. I like it. I enjoy it. And David comes to the situation, and he's got people that want to eat him. They want to destroy him. They want to take him out. And he says, there's only one thing I want. There's only one thing, only one thing. What would be your one thing? I'd be wishing for like some nunchucks or like a force field or some of those angels to come raining down. I'd be wishing for a whole bunch of things, but that's not the one thing that David asks for. That's not the one thing that David wants. Check this out, verse 4. One thing have I asked, Lord, and this is also the only time this phrase appears in the entire Old Testament to the exclusion of all else. If I just get this one thing, if I have this one thing, then I can, can live with everything else. I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing, to dwell and gaze I only want one thing, and that, that one thing, and I know you guys have been in the Gospel of John for some time, but think of the language that Jesus uses all the time. He says the Holy Spirit comes to dwell 
inside of you. That God used to exist in a, in a temple of sorts. And so David's thinking of that, that I could come in, I could inquire in the temple. And what he means by inquire is I could come in and I could sit down and I'd get to know you, God, and I'd see what you're all about and I could just be in your presence and I could spend time with you. And if I could just be around you, then things would be different and I'd be transformed and I'd see my life in a completely different and new way. Just give me this one thing. Allow me to dwell. Gaze, I mean, don't do this on a first date, but maybe by like the eighth date, 10th date, I don't know, where you, you gaze across the table at a lover's eyes. Not in just like this haphazard way, just like, oh yeah, there you are, and there's a cheeseburger. Like, but you're the only thing in the room. You're all I see. You're all I want to see. I have eyes just to gaze upon you. Beauty. Beauty transforms. Beauty transfixed. Beauty is what God is offering us to gaze upon him, to see him, to come in, to know him. All of us are made for this. So much so that, you know, like, this is a little bit of a tangent, but bear with me. I used to watch, uh, like, Larry King all the time. Um, and on Larry King, he'd always get, like, the, the, the token Christian guy to come on there, and he'd be like, hey, why doesn't everyone get to go to heaven? And then the, the, the Christian pastor would whatever kind of fumble around and, you know, come up with his answer and be kind of theologically correct. But I always wanted to just be able to answer that question and just say, if you weren't a Christian, if you didn't love God, why would you want to go to heaven? Because here's what heaven is. Heaven is all Jesus all the time. Heaven is not Club Med. Heaven is not Maui, but it's Jesus all the time. Not being into Jesus and wanting to go to heaven would be like not being into Mickey Mouse and wanting to go to Disneyland. It just doesn't make sense. To go to heaven, to see heaven, is to have the full manifested physical presence of Jesus where you can look him face to face. That is your whole life you've been walking around aching, desiring to finally see Jesus, to finally touch him, to hug him, to see him. That moment occurs. That's heaven. That's what David wants. That's what I want. That's what you want. That's what our souls ache for. That's what we're transformed by is by remembering, by seeing and savoring Christ knowing that gazing upon Jesus is what we're made for, and that's what transforms us more than anything else. We're made for it. So um, I'm going to give you a few things that kind of make this a reality, because here's what's going to happen. Tomorrow's going to be Monday, and it'll be like, oh, Sunday, that was great. Maybe that fired me up a little bit, but I got to go back into Monday. So let me give you a few things, and, and, and here's the truth. The list, the list won't save you, because once again, you could be a professor, and you could do the list but if you do the list and it, it's still just to find God useful, you miss the entire point. The point is to say, do these things because I want you to have communion with God. There's two books, too, I'd primarily recommend on this. I'm sure maybe Dan said these books to you over the years. John, Jonathan Owen's book, Mortification of Sin. It's a great book that talks about how to have intimacy with God. Or Jerry Bridges' Disciplines of Grace, also an incredible book that talks about what it looks like to practically gaze upon God. And so what we do, what we do as followers of Jesus so that we can stunningly encounter him because you and I being filled with the Holy Spirit, and if you're not a Christian, I want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit today. I want you to meet Jesus. I want you to see and savor him. I really do. And everyone in this room, you have awesome people at this church. They want that for you. But as we come, as we, we meet Jesus, here's how we encounter him. We, we, we dive into the Bible. 
we find ways to, to become obsessed with it, not so we can master it for information, but rather so the Bible masters us. It's a completely different disposition. Are you trying to master the Bible, or do you want it to master you? The Bible, I'm not talking the way like I just check. I love checklists, too, so this is my own proclivity and my own problem. I'm trying to work it out, so I love the checklist type deal. I got to move past that to where I come, and I just linger and I burrow down on one passage of the Bible, and I beg, and I plead, and I ask the Lord, what do you have for me here? Jesus, I want to know you more. I want to see the fruit of the Spirit well up in my life, so come and reveal yourself to me in this passage. The Bible always rewards those who linger rather than those who gloss over. Sometimes the driest seasons of my life in reading the Bible are because I don't linger, because I don't wrestle like Jacob did with God, wrestle in the text and stay there and remain there, even if it's just one verse. But Lord, I'm staying here. And then pray, pray in a way like, God, I earnestly need you. Dallas Willard said that the, the, the biggest thing that stops most of us from enjoying Jesus more and meeting him closer is that we have to ruthlessly root out busyness. So rather than refreshing Facebook for the 2800th time, watching the fourth episode of The Office, whatever it else is that we do to occupy ourselves and keep ourselves busy, to pause, to stop, to give space and place for the Holy Spirit to have his way in our lives and in our hearts. I mean, here's a question. I don't know if you've asked this, but this is what's beautiful about the Psalms because the question is asked all the time. What am I really feeling? I mean, we run past our feelings. We just blow right by them. And it leads to chaos. It leads to destruction. It often leads to relational shrapnel. So what am I feeling, and can I be honest about that? With Jesus and with those in my life, can I just be honest about what I'm feeling? And then third, here's, here's another one that really is, is altogether transformative because it's where you're going to drink most deeply of the grace that Jesus Christ offers you is in our ability and our willingness to repent. Some of us think repentance is this punishment of a penance of sorts. Like, oh, if I say the truth or I admit that I'm a mess or I admit I haven't got it right, is this like God telling me to go stand in the corner? But rather God is beckoning you and saying, this is where you get to come agree with me and where your heart gets to be transformed and where you get to be made new. God is always kind. He's always waiting. As, as Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He's waiting for us to return, to come back. And last, and here's where it's super practical for you. Tomorrow morning, every single one of us in this room will wake up with so many blessings we wouldn't even be able to account them. But we've become so accustomed to them, we feel entitled to them. I mean, we have clothes. You guys all have running water in your house. You guys got hobbies. You've got a great church. You've got a, a, a fridge full of food. You've got cars. You're going to go on vacations. And all these things, after a while, we just feel entitled to when in reality they're gifts. They're gifts that also just don't float around in the ether and we grab them, but rather they're given by a gift giver. Your gifts actually come from a gift giver. And what do you do if you're a good parent when you're at a birthday party? You don't let your kids just rip open in the gifts, right? You make them at least open the card. Like, hey, let's just pretend at least. Like, open that card and see who it's from. But I'm just as bad as my little six-year-old girl. I go through all of life not opening the card. I, I just blow right by it. Oh, you know, I just... God, just more and more gifts, more and more blessings, more and more that you've given me. Every gift is a roadmap back to the gift giver. And if we orient our lives and our priorities and we begin to consider and pause and practice gratitude, we begin to see how God's fingerprints and his presence is all over our lives. It's transformative. And God meets us right in 
those places. So what about you? Is God useful or is he beautiful? Is God useful or is he beautiful? This makes all the difference in the world. If you walk around long enough in our culture, you'll have people that have the misconception that what it means to follow Jesus is you find him useful. A transactional relationship begins to develop. God, I held up my end of the bargain. I went to church. I didn't do or uh, stayed out of the places I wasn't supposed to go, didn't do the things I wasn't supposed to do. I tried to do the things that I was supposed to do, so um, I guess we're good, right? That's how you treat the IRS, not someone you love. You want to know why I obey the rules from the IRS? Because I don't want to have a relationship with them. I don't want them to call me. I don't want them to send me any literature. I don't want them to send me any letters. I, I, want, I want no relationship with the IRS. So you know what I do to avoid having a relationship with them is I obey all their rules. And when you obey all the rules so that you can avoid relationship, it's because you find God useful. But here's what you do when you find someone beautiful is you lean in and you say, even when the answers aren't there, even when it doesn't necessarily make sense, even when I'm not getting the things that I expect to get, God, you are still useful. You're still beautiful. You transform me. You're changing me. And we're able to say with Paul that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And that if I was to give everything up, if, if, it, if it was to cost me everything, like it seems to be costing David, I would still say, this is the best deal ever because I get God. And that's what my soul wants. As St. Augustine said, my heart will always be restless until I find rest in you, God. So two things, just going to look at two more, and we'll go a little bit quicker. Verse 4 was really where I want to camp out a bit. We'll go a little bit quicker in verse 7, but there's two things. One's a possible misunderstanding, and one is where we land the plane. Verse 7 through 12 this is what it says. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path, because my enemies give me not up to the will of my adversaries. For false witness has risen against me, and they breathe out violence. So David has this mountaintop moment. He has this great epiphany that God is beautiful and not just useful, that if he can have just one thing and one thing only, it'd be to gaze upon the beauty of God and the majesty of God. But then he goes right back into reality. Because here's the truth. You're going to be there Tuesday afternoon at 3 o'clock, and you're going to be in the mundane place of reality. And so David kind of now has to live out what he just got done teaching us. This is his, his kind of existential crisis. It's, and that's just a big word for his existence. His existence meeting with a deeper desire. And when those two clash, David has to try and reconcile that, just like you do, just like I do every single day. My existence between deep desires, and when those two things clash, I find out, what I really love. And so David has that moment. David is there, and in verse 9 it says, look at that, it says, you will not hide your face from me. It has been revealed to you. It has been revealed. So David knows, God, you're not going to hide your face from me, and sometimes, even when I don't see your face, I need to know that you are not hiding your face from me. 
This is a struggle, though. This is a fight. This is a battle because the longer you go through life, here's what often happens. Cynicism creeps in. Life gets hard. We become wounded. We deal with power. And we lose that sense of wonder. We lose that sense of awe. One of the most beautiful things in my life over the last decade has been having two little kids that remind me what it looks like to have childlike faith. To press back in again to a sense of awe and wonder. That the things that I just consider very mundane and ordinary are actually altogether quite spectacular and amazing and beautiful. And to allow them to reinvigorate my life and my heart to consider once again what a beautiful world I live in, even when it seems quite ordinary. We have to fight, though. This is the battle. This is where your faith is lived out, that you would preach the gospel to yourself, that you would preach to your heart, that you'd be honest with yourself, that you'd be honest with your community group and say, here's what I'm really feeling. Here's what I really love. Here's what I really value. Can I just be honest about that? Will our church, will your community groups, will they be places where people can be honest and say what they really emotionally feel? And there's going to be moments, there's going to be times where you guys are going to come together as a church body and you're going to be in community groups together. And if you're honest, you're just going to need to say like David did, God, where are you? God, I'm trying to seek your face. God, I'm trying to understand what you're doing, but it's hard. And I'm tired. And I feel worn out. In fact, the deepest prayer that David had, and those in the Old Testament, his deepest prayer, was that he would remain in those moments. That he wouldn't wander away. And that's what he says in verse 13. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And here it is. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So what do you do? What do you do when it seems God has gone silent? What do you do when it seems like your life is being destroyed? What do you do when it seems like everything's falling in? You steadfastly, you boldly, you strongly, and you confidently and in community wait for the Lord. You remain, you cling to his promises, you return to his word, and you stay close to his people. You wait. You cannot let your feelings be a greater authority than your faith. You will always battle the difference between your feelings and your faith. I mean, I talk to people all the time. They're like, well, I don't want to read my Bible unless I feel like it. And I'm like, well, what happens if you never feel like it? What happens if your feelings never come around? You're never going to read your Bible? I'm not going to pray unless I feel like it. Well, your feelings have turned into your God. And the Psalms actually teach us this beautiful thing. Our feelings are beautiful and how we live them out and they're not bad, they're not wrong, but our feelings can never trump faithfulness. Our feelings cannot trump Scripture. I can be honest about my feelings. I can express my feelings. That's what I do in prayer. That's what I do in community. That's what I do in journaling. But my feelings don't trump faithfulness. And David sees that. That's why he's willing to wait. That's why he's willing to remain. This is active. Once again, think of Jacob. Jacob's ladder where God comes down and, and, and Jacob wrestles with him. It's like, I'm not letting you go, God, until you bless me. I'm going to remain. I'm going to stay in the ring with you. I'm not walking away because this matters too much. So here's the most incredible thing about all this. David, 
was on the other side of the cross. David was on the other side of the resurrection. David didn't have the ability to look back at the empty tomb like you and I do. David didn't have the Holy Spirit who dwelled inside of him. In fact, David found himself kind of in the story where Moses was. And as most of you know, if you're not familiar with it, Moses, who would go up to Mount Sinai and he would meet with God. And Moses, uh, Moses wanted one thing also. Do you remember the one thing that Moses wants? Show me your glory. And God says to Moses, you can't see my glory. But what I'll do is you hide in that rock over there and I'll pass by and you can see my backside. And when Moses would come down, when he would come down of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, there's, um, there's many different realities in this room right now, and I, I don't want to be insensitive to that, realizing that all of us come into this place this morning with different emotions, different stories, different situations. And some of us feel tired and worn out, and some of us feel joyful and excited and jubilant. And yet the, the, the truth is the same for all, that we would return, that we would remain, that we would gaze upon your beauty. And that beauty is found in your cross, that you would go and die a horrific death on our behalf so that we would have new life. And you wouldn't stay dead, but rather you would conquer death. You would resurrect so that we would know that you are the one true living God. And in you alone, in, in, in your work alone, do we find the beauty, do we find the awe, do we find the glory that truly transforms us. So may all of our hearts be stirred anew. May they be, may they be oriented. May our affections be pointed toward you. That we would truly be transformed by gazing upon who you are. In your name, amen.